0: You're listening to Civic from the San Francisco Public Press. On this edition, we'll hear from Black community leaders around the Bay Area about how the region could develop a more equitable response to the coronavirus pandemic.
1: Oakland, that many of us knew, was sandwiched really between two pandemics. The first being crack, the second being COVID. Let me be clear, COVID-19 has not created anything new. What COVID-19 is doing is exasperating the conditions that already existed from a systemic and institutional standpoint.
0: I'm Laura Wenis, and this is CIVIC. The coronavirus pandemic has disproportionately affected people of color throughout the Bay Area, As of late April, state health department data showed Black Californians were dying from COVID-19 at nearly twice the rate of white residents. In the Bay Area, Latino and Black residents have been testing positive at much higher rates than people of other races. Last week, a coalition known as BARHI, the Bay Area Regional Health Inequities Initiative, brought together a panel of Black community leaders to talk about how they've been responding to the health and economic impacts of the coronavirus pandemic. Today we'll hear excerpts from what they shared. While they came from very different fields, from public education to community development to transportation, several speakers said those most impacted have not been given a seat at the table when it comes to determining the region's pandemic response. Here's what they've set in motion to support their communities during the pandemic and what they would like to see done next.
2: I'm Keith Brown. I'm a teacher at Bret Hart Middle School in Oakland, and I'm released as president of the Oakland Education Association. I just wanna start out by saying the the failure to to fully fund our schools in Oakland at the level that our students deserve is a racial justice issue. Um, Looking at some of the things that our students need because of the um, COVID um, pandemic, a lot of these things was needed before COVID pandemic, as far as our students in the flatlands, our um, black students having access to clean restroom facilities, having access to safe classrooms with air filter systems, having smaller class size. So we're hearing a lot of these things are needed in our schools because of the uh, COVID pandemic to make sure that our students are safe. These are things that our students deserve way before the pandemic. Our Black families have been disproportionately hit the hardest uh, because of the COVID-19 pandemic and uh, this economic crisis. Decades of disinvestment of our Black students and the criminalization of our youth has led to a school to prison uh, pipeline in um, the Oakland Unified School District. So during this this time that we're in is basically a crisis of COVID, racism, and economics. Um, And during this COVID crisis, just seeing the imagery that went around worldwide of the um state killing of george floyd really showed the 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 need to affirm and protect black lives and in this um, moment the the oakland teachers we worked with the black organizing project in oakland um, following the lead of the black organizers who for Um, More than nine years um, have been working on a campaign to eliminate the police from the Oakland Unified School District. So following their lead, the teachers of Oakland, we signed um, a petition supporting the Black Organizing Project's um, George Floyd resolution. Over a thousand of our members signed that petition. Our members created videos. We um, supported the Black Organizing Project and um, students and marches and rallies. Following the lead from the community organizers is how you are able to win campaigns and um, the pressure um, from this coalition. Um, um, Forced the Oakland Unified School District to finally um, pass the resolution where um, the Oakland, um, the OUSD police um, force is um, um, removed from our schools. And that funding now will be going to things that our students deserve such as um, mental health services, um, restorative justice programs and this is what we need to ensure the safety of our students. We need um, healing um, in- informed practices to create um, a safe school environment for our students. Um, also, we want to make sure that the new school year need to prioritize resources for our schools that serve black students, making sure that there's reduced community transmission of COVID-19 cases, and making sure that if we have to go back into a distant learning model, which I call a crisis learning model, which for many of our families, particularly our, our black families, were have not been served, but we need to make sure that our families have access to um, the technology. That there's counseling available for our students, mental health services. It's it's not just about serving the students, but ensuring that um, our families are protected with you know with a safety net to make sure. that that our families are um, protected from evictions, that they have access to healthcare, and also that there's an income protection um, for our our families. I'm just gonna close by, by saying that this pandemic, it really showed the importance of schools. It's a social hub providing not only education, but services such as food, nutrition, health clinics. So we need to make sure that we have um, investments in our students and that we center
3: and prioritize um, our Black students in Oakland. My name is Dr. Rhonda Renfro. I am the executive director and founder of Club Stride Incorporated. Uh, which is a youth empowerment organization located in Vallejo, California, that uh, drives equity-centered youth action uh, to create a civic capital that cultivates healthy, vibrant, and resilient communities. Um, our uh, job as a nonprofit, as a business, we're in the business of giving youth voice and. Even in the midst of this COVID crisis, we have continued to do that. Um, we have moved our, our programs and our services to a remote platforms uh, that continue to allow our, 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 our young activists to, to meet, to uh, exercise their power, exercise their voice, uh, and to lead organized efforts. Uh, For example, we're really, I'm really excited and very proud of a project that they're currently working on, the Strategy to Empower Impacted Families Project, um, where they're working directly with members of family members who have been impacted by police violence. Today, in in the city of Vallejo, African-American people uh, face life, and death situations. And and those situations require a vision, a leadership vision uh, that will promote collective healing, reconciliation, peace, and trust. But the city of Vallejo, the city government continues to support strategies and policies that promote structures of inequality or inequity and racism. They, these policies continue to deepen the devastating health impacts of COVID-19 disparities in our most devastated or vulnerable communities. Uh, We have upcoming on July 28th, uh, an event which we intend to kick off resolution-driven action toward healing. Um, Vallejo is a city that needs to heal. There's been a lot of trauma that has happened uh, in connection with police brutality And um, this demonstration, we're calling the red light demonstration, it's going to be a virtual event. And the the focus of of the event is to challenge um, false narrative around uh, defunding police, um, uh, law enforcement. And the young people who are actually um, organizing this event they also want to protest efforts by the city of Vallejo to increase funding for law enforcement while they seemingly are, are blatantly um, ignoring uh, the issues of mental health uh, that, um, that, uh, that will continue to persist and, and perpetuate if they, if they do so.
4: My name is Shamari Carter, I'm the executive director of occur occurs a community building organization and we have three pillars civic engagement education and technical assistance and economic development um now we've been engaging in new solutions to old problems uh, that have been exasperated by uh covet 19s and civil unrest and uh the economic instability um we are maintaining our technical assistance through uh through Zoom and through online measures uh, for both businesses, uh, faith organizations, and other nonprofits. Uh, We have started a black business relief fund and this relief fund was started to create or to minimize the barriers to funding. We saw that there were a lot of, there always been a lot of barriers to funding and they were again, exasperated during COVID-19 and during civil unrest. So we wanted to create a fund that that minimizes uh, those barriers and the barriers that we saw is access, uh, logistic, logistical issues and timing and the speed of funding, being able to have a rapid uh, relief fund and something that can be uh, issued in a short amount of time with the least amount of paperwork. It wasn't just about giving funds for us, it was also about doing some community building and community building through uh, economic development. And so uh, we did issue some direct mini grants, but a lot of our work has been to connect uh, supporting businesses. So we have a business um, that does branding, and so we have purchased vouchers for other businesses to use those branding services as part of our uh, Black Business Relief. And we've also been focused on making sure that we put those businesses back to work. A lot of the businesses want to go to work. Uh, it's just now, it's one thing to get funding, but it's one thing to put uh, these businesses back to work and having some activity. So every Tuesday and Thursday at our uh, technology center, the David E Glover Technology Center, we have a community pop-up where it's mainly food distribution, but uh, we also accept other donations and uh, we give out mass. Two weeks ago, an Oakland-based business, Pound Business, we, we decided we're gonna buy 500 slices of pound cake to go along with the 500 meals that we issue out every day. And we issued out those meals, and it, it, was, it was a great experience for community. It was a great experience for that business, and it was also effort and community building and letting community see, once again, the businesses that we have in our community and that we are sustainable. We, we had an event, I believe it was two weeks ago now. Uh, it was a Deep East Oakland Rising, where it was a rally, a march, and a festival. And so th- our main concern was in the, the Black Joy Festival, where uh, we brought together uh, three different catering companies. Uh, We brought together uh, a black sound company. We brought together a black security company and we brought together uh, our local clinics to be able to provide health education and provide a community building outlet for the residents of Deep East Oakland, especially the residents that feel like they are not a part of uh, some of the protests and have a voice Uh, otherwise in other parts of the city. So we wanted to make sure that that voice was created while also promoting our businesses. And once again, just everyone being able to market and see and be able to participate in economic development in the community. That's the the big highlight of our COVID and civil unrest, as I call it, uh, um, outreach efforts of
0: You're listening to excerpts from a recent panel of Black community leaders in the Bay Area discussing the region's response to the coronavirus pandemic.
5: My name is Yvonne Williams, and I'm the president business agent of the Amalgamated Transit Union Local 192. We're chartered right here in Oakland, California in 1901. And since 1901, we have been providing transportation services to our most vulnerable and needy community to the children who have to go to the public schools and private schools, to, uh, to folks that need to get to work if they're going to a grocery store and anywhere that they may need to go in order to uh, provide for their families. We've been providing that transportation piece. We represent um, about 1,700 members in Alameda, Contra Costa, and Solano counties. We represent bus drivers, mechanics, allied trades, janitors, service employees, and clerical workers. In order for me to really frame what I wanna say to you today about what we see in our communities as we transverse the, uh, the streets, I have to bring you back to 1980 through 1990. When the crack epidemic started to devastate our communities, what we saw as young children, as young as seven years old with their siblings that could be as young as three years old. One o'clock in the morning, seeking transportation, trying to get back to their communities, whether it was Acorn or, or East Oakland or wherever they needed to go. The transit operators at that time refused to call the Child Protective Services because we knew that our black babies would only end up in a system that would harm them more than they were being harmed by being in the streets trying to get home at 2 o'clock in the morning. Now, we're in this situation of COVID-19. And I'm here to speak to you about what we need to do to to try to do something to curtail or contain the um, increase in the uh, positive test that's devastating our community. As a transit worker for forty over 40 years, I can absolutely tell you what we need is to take the testing to where the people are. I think it's really, uh, 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 it's, it's a doggone shame when people who do not have access to the internet connection and may not have access to other resources, may not even have the bus fare or transportation to get to where the testing sites are. That we're not thinking more broadly and either having a bus as a mobile transportation to get to where we need to test our people and make sure it's not a requirement for them to be recommended for the test by anybody just to show up, have the test and also we should not be requiring our homeless population, our needy population to have an identification or other uh, any other uh, uh, means to, in order to be uh, provided with the COVID-19 test. What we've done at ATU and other ATU uh, properties is when the CARES Act funds were first distributed in the Bay Area, we, contacted the Metropolitan Transportation Commission. We asked the Metropolitan Transportation Commission to provide essential uh, protections for our workers. We asked for PPEs for all transit workers, including masks, gloves, disinfecting wipes, hand sanitizers, and plexiglass dividers on vehicles to protect transit drivers. We asked for masks, for every rider who needs one to protect riders and drivers in the larger community. We ask for disinfecting of all transit vehicles to state-of-the-art standards on virus protection, including hiring new workers, training them in state-of-the-art sanitation uh, methods and outfitting them with hazard suits, N95 masks, gloves, and goggles. We ask for hazard pay for our heroic transit workers. We asked to recover the fares, uh, for recovery of the fares that have been lost by rear door boarding. We also asked to meet specific needs of especially vulnerable populations, including people with disabilities, seniors and paratransit. What the Metropolitan Transportation Commission did was they decided to disperse the funds based on a pre-pandemic formula which did not address the items that I uh, just listed. We continue to advocate for those items. The Metropolitan Transportation Commission, um, they formed a blue ribbon task force. Um, Jim Lindsay, our ATU International Vice President, was on the blue ribbon task force. He could not and would not agree with their recommendations because they didn't, address the aforementioned uh, issues. The Metropolitan Transportation Commission wants to leave the decision to the employers of the transit agencies to make a decision on how best to uh, protect the riding public and, and the transit workers. We're asking the Metropolitan Transportation to show leadership at this time and stand up and set aside some of the CARES Act funding specifically to make sure that the items that I uh, uh, previously mentioned are, are provided for and mandated. This situation that we are currently in now is completely devastating to the Black community. There is no doubt about it. There's uh, stats out there uh, that. that explain uh, our exposure compared to other communities. Right now, we are like two-thirds, I believe, of the uh, a positive test and a higher number of, of those who died, even within our own ATU international uh, and transportation uh, systems. So, uh, you know, I believe that we can lift up uh, this situation I'm so glad to be on this panel with such great panelists such great speakers and people that I am ashamed to say I didn't know your work But I do now and I value you uh, 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 I value you So we're going to continue to push to make sure that every rider has a mask if they need one That there's sanitation sanitizers on each bus our transportation vehicle that these vehicles are sanitized at the end of every line so that when our public gets on the bus, they can be confident, confident that we're doing everything we can to protect their safety. We don't need our riders and our workers um, becoming ill, which they are, and, and then transporting this virus home to their families and their loved ones. And so that is what we're working on. Ms. Nikki Beasley, executive director from the Richmond Neighborhood Housing Services.
6: Leading the Richmond Neighborhood Housing Services, we are an organization that's been around since 1981, providing housing to low to moderate income families. We've transitioned to a full blown affordable housing organization. And our focus points are we're property managers of single family homes that we rent to low to moderate income families. We are a HUD certified counseling agency that provides the financial education related to home ownership, but also protecting individuals that are at risk of foreclosure. Um, We also are infield developers building home ownership opportunities for first time home buyers. And lastly, we do a lot of advocacy as it relates to consumer affairs and uh, tenant rights and consumer affairs specific to CRA, which is a catalyst, community reinvestment act, a catalyst to a lot of the issues that we find uh, that are keeping, you know, Black folks from being able to participate in the economy. So I have to say when COVID hit, we took a moment. Um, we were not reactionary because I really needed to understand what our role in place would be and how valuable of a voice we would have to address the needs of the community and really trying to quickly assess what the needs were. So we created a rapid response uh, fund to support single family or senior, single parent households with minor children and seniors to provide stipends for utility and food. Um, We've also ramped up our educational series, which is our pre-purchase workshop and uh, Money Matters series, got them all on the virtual platform. And our feeling was that we had to keep people encouraged, keep people focused on the overarching goals that they had financially and not that we went to business as usual, but really kind of created the sense of urgency, understanding that many would say that in crisis, they find opportunities. And as you've heard, in our crisis, crisis in Black communities, we don't tend to excel. So that's really been our mission, um, that if home ownership, is still a platform, we have a tagline that says changing the narrative of home ownership. So prior to COVID, people felt that um, you know, you couldn't get into a home without 700 credit score, 20% down. We have demystified that myth. Um, and post-COVID, car during COVID, people's concern of what's going to happen in real estate, is this a good time? And we believe that ownership is a catalyst to all other things happening to support the security of a family. Um, so that's really been our call to action, the uh, getting funds to support families, as well as keeping people targeted on their overall goals. I would say that, you know, the needs are this. Um, what everyone is starting to understand, we as Black people have been living this experience for <laughs> our lifetime. Um, but I believe as Black leaders, this is our opportunity because the momentum the focus, the attention, the words and the conversation have not been as colorful as they've been now, where we now can walk into rooms and not be feeling a certain kind of way we say black compared to people of color. And from a media standpoint, if you truly want to get to the crux and the root of this, you too being comfortable to say this is a black issue, not a person of color issue, Um, If you want to get to the root of it, do the landscape lens of understanding the why, which then is the breadcrumbs to all of the systematic racism that now people are getting very comfortable to talk about. So with all that's happening now, it's critically important that we leverage this momentum and dismantle some of the conversations, and I'll stay specific to housing, not assuming that all black people are poor which brings us to the housing component that much of the subsidies that are available are for low to very low income levels and it was an aha moment for me because there's an assumption because when we say community that's a code word for people of color black but when we talk about um individuals that are, you know, working class or the missing middle that tends to be in area median incomes that exceed 100%, they're assumed to be making, you know, good money, so they don't need any support. But what, and this is where that lens, that landscape lens becomes critically important in this type of conversation, that as an African-American Black person making, let's say $120,000 sounds really good on paper, but they do not have the wealth generation of dad, grandparent, uncle, cousin, that can assist with a down payment to get into a property, that could assist that if they did get a unwarranted eviction, that they could get money for you know, the resources to help get into the next unit. Um, and that what doesn't tend to get talked about is from an African-American standpoint, we are at the lowest level on any metrics, whether it be employment, health, ownership, wealth, you name it, we're at the bottom. But the one area that we're at the height is education. And with that education comes debt. So when a person is making, quote unquote, good money, but they also have a hundred to $150,000 worth of student debt, that destroys their disposable income to really move and navigate. So my closing words would be that as reporters, when you're having these conversations, there needs to be a deeper dive because we can't continue to get comfortable with understanding the issue, but not trying to figure out what the problem is and when We look at those influencers, if they're not decision makers at the table that look like the people that they are attempting to serve, that's problematic because, again, this panel, and I think it's already been shared, can share a minimum of five or ten things that could immediately drastically improve community, but we're not the ones able to, um, you know, turn on that lever to make it happen. So as our allies, opening up the door to make sure that we can sit down to ensure that these, these actionable items can take place so that this isn't, all this activity is not done in vain, but we can actually see some outcome of a moment like this really transitioning the communities in the way in which we want to see them.
1: My name is John Jones III. I'm on staff with Just Cities, where I serve as the Director of Community and Political Engagement. Just Cities is an organization that was founded by the late Honorable Ron Dellums. And he actually coined the name Just Cities because we're talking about justice. Uh, What we do essentially is two things. Uh, We advance racial justice by utilizing a transformative approach to policymaking. And what that means uh, real quickly is first of all, we organize those who are directly impacted by the issue. We believe those who are closest to the problems are also closest to the solutions. We value their experience and their expertise. And in a collaborative manner, we coordinate with other stakeholders in the community to craft a solution that's going to address the issues, not just currently from a reactive standpoint, but also incorporating the elements of historical context and institutional memory. Oakland, that many of us knew, was sandwiched really between two pandemics, the first being crack, the second being COVID. Let me be clear, COVID-19 has not created anything new. What COVID-19 is doing is exasperating the conditions that already existed from a systemic and institutional standpoint. So one of the things that we do is we educate folks on these issues. I'm someone that's formerly incarcerated. I am also the campaign director for the Alameda County Fair Chance Housing Coalition, where this year in January, we passed the strongest housing policy for formerly incarcerated people. And it's interesting because in a lot of ways it was prophetic because the, the ordinance passed in Oakland in January, it, another one passed in Berkeley in uh, February, and then we got hit with COVID and the shelter in place uh, in March. So we know that over a thousand people have been released from our county jails. We know thousands have been released from state prison and we can fully anticipate that thousands more will be released. Here's the reality, something I've been sharing for years. There's only one place in America, any one of us is guaranteed a roof over our head and that is in prison. I want to really think about that because there is a clear connection and intersection between mass incarceration and this current housing crisis that we're experiencing here regionally. They are the result of policies and programs that were implemented decades ago. So for us, when we do the research and provide the education, it's important to give white supremacy and anti-black racism a structure. Give it a name. Give it something that people can see that's accessible. So that way it's clear what we're fighting. A lot of times people use terms, but it's not fleshed out. So it's a gray area. Like when people say racism, you know, to me, there's a distinction between racism, which is systemic and being prejudiced. You know, if I see a big, scary dog or a dog that's scary to me, I'm prejudiced against that, you know, but racism is the power to institutionalize my prejudice. So we have to always segment the two, because I see this with policing issues, and there's a tendency to separate the police from the system. And as Dr. Huey Newton told us, the police is the instrument of the system. Police historical policy. The police can only enforce what legislators enact. George Floyd was murdered because Minnesota was dealing with counterfeit money. And it was alleged that he was attempting to pass a counterfeit $20 bill. That store had a policy to where if that was to occur, to call the police. So we have to look at all the moving parts of these issues. Could that lead us to where do we go from here? How do we really recover? How do we transform our society? How do we prioritize black health? How do we prioritize the conditions that's happening in San Quentin in our state prison system? Because those conditions are mirrored in the quote-unquote free world as well. It starts with transformation. And at the risk, I want to offer this biblical verse because it's so important, something I live by. Be not conformed to the patterns of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. See, the world is geared to be very reactive. Something that I shared that relates to George Floyd. I believe the reason why that situation uh was accessible to everybody because first of all we're dealing with covid and shelter in place so many people were home to actually see it let me be clear he was not the first person killed by the police and as we heard today there were many more killed after him we got to get out of what i call this predictive programming to where something occurs and then people say oh my god this is happening for the first time no it has not as someone that's a third generation oakland resident i want to remind people the black panther party for self-defense. None of this is new. What we have to do is come up with an approach that's going to incorporate the reality of all these moving parts. I'll call it the four Rs. The first is reparations. Many people think of reparations as just receiving money. That's restitution, which is a second R. But reparations is repairing what is happening and has been happening for centuries. And it's similar to a doctor. In order to make sure that we're providing an effective cure, we have to make sure that we're also making the right diagnosis. I recall a situation to where the doctor incorrectly amputated the wrong foot because he didn't even read the chart to find out which foot should have been amputated. These things happen. We have to be educated. We have to educate ourselves. We have to educate each other, right? So restitution is receiving financial settlements, but reparation takes it a step further. It's the third R, rehabilitation. We hear this word, they added that to CDC. Now with CDCR, Department of Rehabilitation. The definition is to restore a person to their original condition. No one's being restored to their original condition because when people come home, they're saddled with so many barriers. And this is why I've been pushing a real hard line as it relates to our people, our loved ones coming home. Yes, I don't want people incarcerated. And as someone that's formerly incarcerated, I was in prison during uh, H1N1. So I know it's next to impossible to keep prison sanitized. It's next to impossible, it's too confined, it's too much shared space. But I always say this, when people say come home, what does that word mean? Do people even have a place to come home to? People was talking about shelter in place. Everyone don't even have a safe place to shelter in. A lot of our young people don't have a safe place to shelter in. So we've been pushing to ensure that, at least in Oakland and and Berkeley, and we're trying to do this countywide. the next year we are anticipating to move this statewide to ensure that when people do apply or want to move in with their family members, they don't have to mark that box. We have to rehabilitate these systems. It's not enough to say, well, this was wrong, let's end that. We have to also address the harm that resulted from these policies. And we have to advance equity. You can't have an equitable society for 400 years and say, okay, well, today we want to play fair. No, that's not justice. That's not fairness. Last thing I want to add that's really uh, key. And for me, um, we have to center the leadership of those who are impacted by the issues. Too many people treat this like an academic exercise. It's not academic. We have another saying, you don't know what you don't know. We have to incorporate the wisdom of those who are experienced in these issues. This is how we can turn this moment that we're in and transform a moment into a movement.
0: You've been listening to excerpts from a recent panel of Black community leaders in the Bay Area discussing the region's response to the coronavirus pandemic. This was at a media roundtable organized by Bar High, the Bay Area Regional Health Inequities Initiative. I'm Laura Wenis, and you've been listening to Civic.